Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast. I'm your host, Heidi E. Wilcox, bringing you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you who are looking to connect where your passion meets the world's deep needs. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Bishop Emilio Alvarez. Currently, he is an adjunct professor at Asbury Seminary and serves as the primate of the Union of Charismatic Orthodox Churches. He is also the founder and rector of the Cathedral at Gathering Place in the city of Rochester, New York, as well as president and founder of the Institute for Paleo-Orthodox Christian Studies. He has a forthcoming book with InterVarsity Press titled Towards a Pentecostal Orthodoxy and is also a contributor to the forthcoming InterVarsity Press liturgical series, The Fullness of Time, A Journey Through the Church Year. In this conversation, we talk about Bishop Alvarez's faith journey, calling, and why he's passionate about training clergy and laity to worship, believe, and live out our faith in integrated, practical ways. And of course, we talk about his new book. Let's listen. Dr. Alvarez, it is such a delight to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming by. Oh, it's my pleasure, Heidi. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be with you. Yes, yes. How's your day going so far? Well, so far, um, you know, I wake up early in the morning and um, write, research, do some grading and um, uh, go about my day a little bit after nine and then come back to research and writing and then I spend most of my day uh, doing that. So I would have to say it's a typical day. Okay. Typical days are good. <laughs> yeah. How, because I've been trying to get up early, I think my whole life. So right. how do you, and I think it's just a matter of discipline and I don't have discipline mm. early in the morning, but how did you establish that routine to get up early? Because from the sound of it, you've put in half a day's work, you know, by the time a lot of people are getting up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. There's kind of two answers to that. Um, you know, my father was a pastor in a Pentecostal denomination. And so when I was about 12 or 13, he would wake me up, you know, uh, we pastored a storefront church at the time and the apartment was upstairs and the church was downstairs. And Every, every night or every morning, excuse me, at 6 a.m., he would pound on my door. <laughs> wake up, you know, and he would take me with him downstairs to pray. Uh, and that was right before I went to school. But um, when I was about 18 or 19, I ended up uh, in Buffalo, New York as an aspiring evangelist, young man, and ended up living for a while at a pastor's house um, who, for whatever reason, could not um, keep housing me at his little apartment. It was very small with him and his family. So they made a room for me in the basement of a church there in Buffalo. And I, I lived there for about, I want to say, close to a year in this basement of this humongous church. Wow. <laughs> I remember that um, my bed was um, two pew chairs put together with baby mattresses on them. And yet, um, it was one of the most phenomenal spiritual moments of my entire life. Really? There that I really began to learn how to pray. And it was there that I asked the Lord, I said, God, if you wake me up every morning at five or six o'clock in the morning, um, I'll get up to pray and I will mm -hmm. pray at least an hour. And so I have to confess that for 
a while I did set my alarm. One morning I didn't set, uh, set it. And I remember feeling um, that the pew chair where I was sleeping rocked or shaped. It shook really? one morning. And it just so happened that it was that same time that I didn't set my alarm. And so when I woke up and I woke and I said, oh, God, there's like some kind of earthquake. Right. Um, looked at the time and it was six o'clock. Wow. Um, and for some time after that, I really didn't have to set my, my alarm clock. Um, I, I would just wake up. And I think mm -hmm. there was something divine and spiritual about that. Mm -hmm. um, here we are uh, more than 20 years removed from that. And it is discipline, but it is also my body being accustomed to waking up at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I've done yeah. it for so long, you know, that yeah. I just wake up at five o'clock. Right. I love that because you've not only set the pattern because we talk about rewiring our brain to, you know, change our thought patterns from right. negative thoughts to positive thoughts. Right. You've set, you've set your body and just your pattern to, to seek the Lord. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. 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 To seek the Lord and, and get engaged immediately. <laughs> I do consider uh, my work to be part of my devotional time. And I tell my students all the time, I say, if you bring your work with you into your devotional time, even through your work, God has something to say. God will reveal something. And so that's what I've been doing for the best part of, you know, since I was, what, 19, 18. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So have you, because you're a, a pastor, church planner, you're the president of the Institute for Paleo Orthodox Christian Studies, and I'm sure I'm missing some things <laughs> in there too, but you're your work is in and all around the church. Have you always loved the church? Um, I, I don't, I don't know if I've always loved the church. Mm -hmm. I just have to be very, very real, very honest about that. I think that um, as a PK, a preacher's kid, uh, you see so much um, and you grow up with certain um concerns and mm -hmm. certain ideas about what the church is. Um, and I don't know if I really loved the church until I was about maybe 27 or 28. Okay. That I began to love both the groom and the bride. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I've always had a fascination for the church. Um, if that makes any sense, it's always been a place that's homey, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, because um, I'm sure a lot of people listening are preacher's kids, missionary kids, mm -hmm. grew up in some kind of Christian setting, and I'm sure some didn't as well. How did you come to to reconcile some of the things, because I'm walking the same journey. Okay. Um, okay. How did you come to reconcile some of the things that you saw as a preacher's kid that weren't necessarily Christ-like yeah. and continue and just reconcile those? You know, it was years later that I was able to do that. I grew up in a very legalistic um, Pentecostal tradition. Um, and I mean, you know, you couldn't breathe without the breath that you took being, you know, Satan or the enemy or some kind of um, travesty against God. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, I, I really did not know how to deal with that. And it caused me, in, in all honesty, about 15 years old, 16 after um, 
some time with my father uh, to rebel against uh, both my parents and the church mm-hmm. uh, and God, because I at that moment I could not reconcile. Um, why is it that uh, I feel hated? I feel despised. I feel, yes. and yet you're preaching a gospel of freedom, a gospel of liberty, a gospel of peace. But I don't feel at peace, and I don't, <laughs> yes. you know, loved. And so it was only years later when I came into certain maturity, uh, spiritual maturity, uh, that I was able to understand. I think that the other part was that my father, my parents then had a radical reconversion um, experience and um, really began to walk differently uh, mm-hmm. and more humbly. Um, mm-hmm. And that was able to help me as well later on in life reconcile the two. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah that does. That's that's beautiful. How did you then take your parents' faith and it become personal for you, mm. so you could go on to the ministry that God was calling you? Um, you know, that's very interesting as well because um, I grew up in a very supernatural environment. I grew up in a in a in a supernatural environment, in an environment, in an environment of faith that was very tangible, in regard to miracles and signs and wonders. I mean, I'm I'm probably maybe ten or twelve, seeing things that are so miraculous that they're straight out of you know the Book of Acts. I mean, we mm-hmm. we saw miracles, we saw healings, we we saw all of that. But I also think that. Um, with that came the discipline that was installed that was instilled in in me by my father but also particularly my grandmother who uh, also raised us um myself and my four sisters and so um years later even though i have taken kind of a, a different journey right into mm-hmm. recovery of the great tradition and some of the mm-hmm. things that i now um, have come to in, in regard to faith, the basis is and the foundation has been set. Uh, yes. That that foundation of prayer, that foundation of devotion, that foundation of faithfulness and service, um, that foundation of love uh, for God and for others, it, it continued. And it allowed me then later on in life to be able to continue developing because mm-hmm. the foundation had already been set. Yeah. 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 How did you experience your call to be a church planner, to go on to do the rest of the things that you're doing? Yeah. You know, what Robert Weber has, um, he says there's three categories of faith. I've always enjoyed his three categories of faith. There's, um, there's uh, owned faith. Uh, there's borrowed faith. There's a, then a forming, developing faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I really, I really think that it had to do with something around maybe 26, 27, 25 years old, um, where I really began to understand something about the particularity of the assignment that God had for my life. Now, I'm always going to argue that we, we are to serve, right? It wasn't until I was 24 that someone said to me, you are in service and it is God who decides what service when and where. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until maybe 26, 27, I would say, that I began to discover the particular service that God wanted me, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was church planting, pa- 
pastoring, but in a particular type of way, mm-hmm. which was planning churches to recover the great tradition, um, particularly within Afro-Latino Pentecostals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, over the years, I have to confess, Heidi, that um, I- I'm just now, I'm just now, I'm 43, and I'm just now getting to the place where I'm beginning to understand more of that call. Really? Yeah. What are you learning about that now? You know, it's interesting because, again, um, I think you have this call to service, but you don't know mm-hmm. where you fit in. You don't know what it is. Right. And that's a developmental maturity as you mature, as God puts you through trials, tribulations, successes, as you go through processes of education and formation, the people that God brings into your lives. And one of the things that I'm learning, particularly now at this stage of my life, is how um, or the implications of the study that I've put in for the last decade and how I was supposed to do that. And God, uh, you know, one of my mentors is Dr. Eldon Villafania from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminaries. And one of the things that he's always stressed to me is you will study things now that you will use in years to come. And I, I, I'm, I'm utilizing things now at this stage of my life that 10 years ago didn't make sense. I was like, why do I have to study this? This has nothing to do with what I'm doing. I just want to preach. Yeah. Here I am 10 years later going, oh, my God, this fits perfectly with the yeah. background of the trajectory that I was studying 10 years ago. And so I'm rediscovering some things or, and, and discovering some new things afresh now about my call and uh, that I just didn't have any idea, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago, um, yes. you know, particularly, and I'll say this last thing, um, you know, particularly how um, in my context as an Afro-Latino Pentecostal, how I can recover the great tradition and how there is already precedent for that and how, ha- how that is, has existed already in the life of the church which is mm-hmm. astonishing because here I am thinking, well, there's no precedence for this. I'm out here by myself and I'm drowning. But no, there's precedence and I'm discovering that more and more each day. Yeah. I love that. I love that it's been a journey for you because I think sometimes I have, I think other people have, we get hung up on Moses and the burning bush moment and it's mm-hmm. like a one thing yeah. and then we just know what to do right. you know, for the rest right. of our lives. But even for him, it kind of changed, you know? So, yes. so I love that. And I love hearing about the building blocks of the pieces that you were like, well, this has nothing to do with anything, but now it just fits in, you know, like a perfect Tetris game. Yeah. Yeah. I think one last thing that I would suggest and that what I'd say about myself, Heidi, What's really interesting is that, oh, my God, I don't know how to say this without the audience taking it the wrong way. Said, I don't want to do this. Really? Yeah, I, I really don't. Um, I, I think the closest people that know me know that I don't want to do it. So why, why, <laughs> do, you, why do you do it? <laughs> it's... You know, it's obedience to God. I love God and I love his church and I love his people. I think that in obedience to God, um, I I will give my life to him and Mm -hmm. um, have given my life and will continue to give my life. But if if someone came and, and said, you have a choice between 
doing this type, this type of ministry and having a restaurant, I will pick the restaurant every day. Really? Twice on Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you read scripture, um, God loves to mess with people who are minding their own business. Uh-huh. You know, Moses is uh-huh. his a father-in-law's sheep. He's minding his own business. Um, Amos is minding his own business. Noah is minding his own business. Uh, all of these people are just minding their own business, yeah. not looking for any of this stuff. And then in the middle of that, there's some type of crisis, right? That, that God then introduces this call and response type of revelation. Mm-hmm. And in obedience, then, uh, this is who they become and what they do. But yeah, 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 I don't know, yeah. So do you find, because you obviously bring great joy, I can just tell by talking to you, do you find what you do drudgery then? I don't know if I find it drudgery. I think there are days where I I, um, I really think about the restaurant. Um, <laughs> you know, there's days where, but 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 his, his grace is sufficient, and I know it is. Yeah. And, um, when I see the progress of the work, the expansion mm-hmm. of the work, um, the importance of the work in, in other people's lives, yeah. it reminds me of Christ and his sacrifice for us. Yeah. And I get my cues from that. And, and I'm, I'm like, Paul, you know, I've got this thorn and I, I keep asking, would you please remove this from mm-hmm. me? He says, no, my grace is sufficient, right? For in weakness... Not in your weakness, but in weakness general, my strength is made perfect. So I don't know if I get drudgery. I think that I'd get, like everybody else, moments of, oh, God, you know, yeah. it's be over. Uh, <laughs> but then I remember uh, that the work is significant. It, it's blessing others and it's needed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to know that you're human because I think a lot of people, they're like, they seldom talk about that sometimes the work is hard and sometimes they have a task or a project or a situation that they're like, oh man, can I change jobs now? Like, I don't want (laughs) to, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. 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 But I also think that God works through our interests. And so I just, I think it would be interesting to talk again in 10 years and see if somehow that restaurant became part of your ministry somehow. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have a joke with my kids and I tell them, you know, in about 10 or 15 years, you're going to, you know, find me in a restaurant in some kind of village or town. And here I am, you know, two PhDs having taught at theological <laughs> seminaries, and I'm in the back cooking. <laughs> you, you know, uh, oh, this is Dr. Alvarez. Yeah, and I'm in the back, you know, some kind of bandana on and just yeah. cooking away. And um, I, I, I do think that that would probably be um, a, a happy ending. So it'll yeah. be cool to, to see in 10 or 15 years, you know, where we're at with that. Yeah. Yeah. So you like to cook in general then? I do. I do. As a young man, a younger man, I, I, um, I cooked at restaurants. Um, you know, I worked at restaurants and um, I, I learned how to uh, make sauces and different dishes from scratch. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because, you know, my youngest son, Lucas, uh, that's his passion. 
Um, really? It is, it is. And, and so um, he reminds me a lot of that segment of time in my own life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So you're an adjunct professor when you're not cooking or thinking about <laughs> dreaming about that <laughs> and doing the rest of the things that you do. Right. Um, you're an adjunct professor at the seminary teaching classes in worship, leadership, and the church. How did you get connected to Asbury? Um, you know, it really is Winfield Bevins. Dr. Winfield Bevins was the connect there. Um, I, don't ask me how I met Winfield because... <laughs> Uh, he's a very good friend, but he and I don't remember how we connected. And um, I was um, in connection with Winfield, and he and I had been going back and forth about some projects, about the institute um, that uh, we started. And um, he put me in contact with uh, several of the deans there at Asbury. Mm-hmm. And some wonderful conversations. They invited me to do a presentation and a talk, which I did. And, um, and then from there, they, they thought um, uh, to ask if I would consider, you know, mm-hmm. having this kind of uh, relationship with Asbury, which has turned out to be wonderful, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. As, as you teach your classes, if you're, what do you hope to instill in your students? As I teach, I think I, I hope to instill the tension between cognitive academic excellence and experiential spirituality that's pragmatic, that's practical. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I, I don't necessarily want them to have all kinds of propositional, uh, cognitive, ideological, you know, uh, precepts without being able to apply them pragmatically, very practically. Mm-hmm. Um, either be in their ministries or in the contextual settings, whatever that may be. Um, but I do strive for academic excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that this is the time of the pastor theologian. So I do strive for academic excellence. Yeah. 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 You're also, you wear many hats. <laughs> um, you're also the president and founding director of the Institute for Paleo Orthodox Christian Studies, and it trains clergy and laity in Christian classical consensual faith and practice. So how did this institute, because you're the, you're the founder. Yes. How did this come to be? Oh, well, the institute is a wonderful place that's currently training men and women in the recovery of a great tradition, classical consensual Christianity. Um, actually, the institute started, um, it came about by way of a capstone project that I was doing for my master's in religious education. Interesting. Uh, I was with an organization at that time that had asked me to chair their commission on ordained ministry and education and to kind of set up a program for forming their clergy. So I set up this program and it was about 50, 60 pages, Um, did some really good research on it and made it my capstone for the master's program. Um, And then after that, Um, was in discussion with New York Theological Seminary. New York Theological Seminary ends up making it an actual certificate program at the Theological Seminary. Um, Made me the director of that particular um, certificate program. Some years later, after I got done studying my, um, after I got done, excuse me, earning my PhD, I did my dissertation, at Fordham University on Paleo-Orthodoxy Encounters Religious Education, 
um, we established what um, we had learned from NYTS, what we had gathered from the program, what we had gathered from the actual document, and established it as its own institute um, with wonderful relationships with theological seminaries like NYTS and Asbury and Fordham and other uh, universities mm-hmm. and theological mm-hmm. seminaries around the country. So that's how that came about. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So you just saw a need and mm-hmm. developed something to fill that. Yeah. You know, there was, at least in our context, and now it's become broader, but in our context at the time, you know, we were struggling. There were men and women who were saying, yeah, but where do we go to recover mm-hmm. the you know elements of the great tradition? How do we learn sacramental and liturgical theology without, you know, having one bend or the other, you know, in terms of either Orthodox, Anglican, Roman Catholic, but an amalgamation of all of them together. Mm-hmm. We go to learn how to recover, um, you know, St. Vincent of Lorenz, uh, everywhere, always, and by all. You know, where do we go to do all these things? And that's what the purpose for the Institute is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have eight courses, and you can finish those in a year or two years, and then afterwards, um, there's some other fun things that we can do by way of association with other schools. That's awesome. That's awesome. You mentioned the great tradition several times, and that may be a new term for some people listening. So could you define that for us? Yeah. So the great tradition for us is really the recovery of um, scriptural, scripture, tradition, um, spirit, um, the great tradition that encompasses um, the seven councils of the church, right? The, mm-hmm. the three creeds, the apostles, Athanasius and Nicene, the writings of the church fathers and church mothers, all the way up to about the 8th century. So when we talk about the great tradition, that's what we're really talking about, is that recovery of Mm -hmm. um, that type of tradition, that type of classical consensual exegesis, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That kind of harmonical proximity that the fathers Mm -hmm. and and the mothers of the church had, because they were closest to the apostles. Um, some would go even further in regard to the great tradition and even include the reformers, which I don't have any issue. I think that, um, you know, one would be right in doing so. So that's what we mean when we say the recovery of the great tradition. Yeah. 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 Why, why is recovering our historical faith and integrating that into the 21st century so important? Oh, that's a good question, and one that I'm passionate about. You know, I, I I think we're wrestling in the in the North American context. We're wrestling with post um, modern moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, I don't know if our worship is worship. I, I, I don't know if our preaching is orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that we have kind of this construction in post modernity. Um, particularly in evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, that is devoid of um, orthodox teaching and doctrine. And by when I say orthodox, it's little O, not big O, mm-hmm. um, you know, right teaching. But our worship is off. I think that our worship as well has become so inundated with individualism that comes from the Enlightenment um, uh, individualism that comes from this moralistic therapeutic deism. I think our worship is geared um, towards kind of the sensibilities of the modern. I think we we get caught up in the rat race when it comes to preaching. All of these modern constructs, right, which 
you know, all of the modernists told us that it was going to cure all, right? <laughs> yes. And in the church, this was supposed to be the new fad. And so we've got lights, we've got smoke, we've got all of these wonderful songs. But at the end of the day, are we telling God's story in worship? Are we, are we preaching? Yeah. Are we preaching the gospel or mm-hmm. are we full of cliches? And so part of recovering the great tradition is um, becoming rooted. And I don't have any issue with lights and uh, smoke and big, you know, TVs and projectors. We have those at our churches. Um, But I think the recovery of the great tradition roots us, brings us back to the foundation. Mm -hmm. And by recapitulation reminds us who not only the subject, but who the object of worship is. Not only the subject, but who the object of preaching is. And it brings us to this Christocentric place in our worship and in our preaching that gives us rootedness that we need today. Mm. Yeah. 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 And I think it kind of, worship kind of starts with you and with me as people as we set our minds on Jesus. And so that's what you're um, teaching your students, to have a practical theology. What does that look like in everyday life so that we live an integrated faith? Right, right. You know, I've been telling my students, um, it it really is that Latin axiom, right? Uh, Axiom, excuse me. uh, Lex orandi, lex credandi, lex vivendi. Um, The law of worship or the law of prayer leads to the law of belief that leads to the law of living. Right. And so uh-huh. out of worship, we have belief and out of belief then we live. And it's not out of belief that we influence our worship. No, it is out of worship. Right. That influences our belief and then our belief influences our living. And so I think that as we as we get um, the object and the subject of our worship correct, it corrects what we believe. And as it corrects what we believe, then what we believe corrects how we live practically in our everyday way, in our everyday being, you know, and how we live, we move, we have our being. Um, One of the things that I struggle with a lot is when people say, oh, we have Christocentric worship, or I live a Christocentric life. Mm -hmm. Is that me? Yeah. Right? Does it mean that you're just in worship saying, Jesus Christ, we love you, and that is Christocentric worship? Mm-hmm. Does it mean that in life you just acknowledge him and that's it? Um, no, no. I, I, I love the, um, the construction of the, the, the first clause of the first article of the Nicene Creed. Uh, I, I love it. It says, we believe, right? One God, the Father, the Almighty. And this is actually something that John Bear teaches us and taught us that I've taken on to my own life. John Bear is one of my mentors, Father John Bear. Um, I'm doing my second PhD with him at Aberdeen. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And he, 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 um, he, he, he mentions this passage and he mentions that Origen, um, the, the church father, Origen um, says that it's a logical sequence because the way that we know that God is almighty is first and foremost because he is father. That the mm. only way we know that God is almighty is because he is father. 
And we mm -hmm. know that he's almighty because he is father, because through his son, Jesus Christ, through his life, uh, ministry, passion in terms of death and resurrection, he teaches us. He shows us that the father is almighty. And so when I say Christocentric worship or Christocentric lifestyle, what I'm saying is, is that I'm seeing him as my Lord and my God, right? Thomas's statement, my Lord mm -hmm. and my God. And as I mm -hmm. worship him and pattern my life after that, then I am so worshiping also in the triune economy. Mm -hmm. Grave implications for how I live. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think because I grew up and there were, you know, rules for being a Christian. And so I... <laughs> I appreciate, but I really want you to be giving me like, um, like do this and, yeah. you know, but I love the beauty of the follow after, after Christ. Yeah. 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 That's what that means to have a Christocentric lifestyle. It's to know not what God is, but who yeah. God is. Yeah. You were mentioning, yeah. You were mentioning earlier about um, churches, individuals, you know, people in general can think and say that they have Christocentric worship, live mm -hmm. Christocentric lives. And I think sometimes we get confused about what that that is, right? Yeah. Because it's been so integrated into our culture that we accept this to be the way it is. Right. How can we, I'm not calling anybody out with my question, but how can we learn to recognize the truth of of this. Do you, does that make sense? What I'm trying to ask. It, it, it does. It does. It's an incarnational reality that um, you know you got to have boots on the ground. Your spirituality has to have boots on the ground. Uh, you, you you cannot say that we have a um, a Christocentric spirituality, Christocentric worship, Christocentric lifestyle. And not do what Christ did. Right? <laughs> I mean, just yes. straightforwardly, yes. right? You, yes. you can't. You can't do. You can't say one thing, and then not do what Christ did. Not love neighbor as you love yourself. Not love enemy. Um, not go um, an extra mile. Um, not not allow for um, you know uh, yourself to turn the other cheek, so to speak. Not not be invested in um, the, the, the poor, not be invested in. And so our whole life is worship um, that needs to be Christocentric, but it needs to be practical. It needs to be modeled after him. Yeah. Right? So right. That, that's where we get from this superficial, um, what is God to who is God? Because then, um, I, oh God, I don't remember. Oh, Jean. Um, oh, God. Uh, Marcion, Marcion, I think it is. I'm, I'm butchering his name, but I'll give it back. <laughs> a book um, entitled Gone Without Being. Okay. Gone Without Being. And um, it's a wonderful book where he um, reflects upon the implications of idol worship and iconography. And he says the difference between the idol and the icon is that while the idol stops your gaze, right? You mm -hmm. look at an idol and you say, that is God and that's it, mm -hmm. right? And you look at it and you go, that's God and that's it. But the icon 
is the window of the soul, is the windows of heaven. It's the window of something else. So you look through it, right? And I think that sometimes our our lifestyle and our worship is like that. I think we we uh, we do a lot, but we don't do what's necessary. Yeah, makes any sense? That does make a lot of sense. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. As we've seen throughout history, but I think a lot today in our North American context, we've seen celebrity Christians, leaders rise and fall. Yeah. And I think what you're doing and the way you're preparing your congregation and the students that you teach, um, you're helping them integrate theology, faith, and their education. Because what we've seen is that they're that sometimes charisma outpaces your character. Yeah. So so how does the proper integration of all of these things keep charisma and character on the same plane? Well, you're preaching now. I, I mean, <laughs> no. That could be a whole sermon. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's a struggle because you're right. Uh, the personality-driven context, the, the hoopla-driven context, of the church, which kind of follows this rat race mentality that the Western world has. Um, It's driven us to build things that are literally Mm. man-made. The only way that I know how to is to not allow my own charisma to compete with the character um, and to compete with the version of the gospel, which is sound. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's possibly the only way that I can really phrase that. Mm -hmm. that If I wanted to, I know that I'm very capable of thwarting the gospel in such a way to make it benefit me. Mm -hmm. I I know I can do this. You know, I'm charismatic. I was trained to preach. Um, I was trained to preach without notes. Um, I have great discipline. Um, I'm an orator. Um, I have education and formation. So I, I really do have the ability to thwart certain things. Um, but I understand that if I do that, that not only a thing rises and dies with me, but the pressure of having to sustain a thing. Yes. Because it is your own charisma. And I think this is where... Um, this is where that that piece with Paul comes in and the thorn on his side. And he says, now I have this thorn. And God says, my grace is sufficient. When it's something that's not birthed out of my charisma, when it gets to moments of struggle, I can go back to God and go, excuse me. I didn't want to do this to begin with. <laughs> and this is not built on my charisma. Yes, my character is here only as kind of this buffer, but it is your gospel. It is your work. It is your ministry, you know? And so I think that the proper integration would be levels of humility, that you come to this place with levels of humility, that you come to a place of intentional and constant checking of your own charisma. I think you need to check your own charisma. I think there are times where you need to um, dwindle down. You need to enact more humility, which is not, you know, um, trying to hide who I am or trying to discount who I am. No, humility is knowing exactly who I am, what I can do, and yet 
at moments in ministry or life, learn when to scale back. So I think that, you know, you have to check that charisma. And then the last thing that I would say is, you know, you have to be convinced and convicted of the very fact that this belongs to God. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, you make it sound easy. It's not always easy to live that out. No, it is not. It is not. No. 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 So you are also a church planner. You founded and pastor um, the Gathering Place where Love Meets in New York. Yes. Why church planning? Oh, man, I've been church planning ever since I was 19. You know, 20 really? Yeah. Yeah, ever since I was 19, 20 years old, I've been church planning. Um. Oh, Heidi, I'm getting, I'm getting tired. I'm getting tired of church planning. But um, I actually love church planning more than I like pastoring. Really? Why? Too. I, I love the excitement of building. Um, do I do? I love the excitement of building. I think I am actually uh, more efficient um, church planting than I am pastoring. And I, yeah, at times, and even here now, I have to surround myself around true day-to-day pastors um, who can shepherd the flock and provide pastoral Mm -hmm. care for the flock. Because I love building. I love um, bringing together, developing together, bringing about um, identity, uh, vision casting, setting mission, uh, raising leaders, developing leaders. Um, so it's always been something, I think it's entrepreneurial, uh, yeah. that I've loved doing, but then knowing what I'm building and how I'm building and then knowing the particularity of what I'm building, you know, the gathering mm-hmm. is here. If you come to a service for Sunday, um, for the first 10, 15 minutes, you'll think we're Catholic, you know, it's the procession and we're swinging incense and the deacon with the book of the gospel comes out and we're all investments and you have a collect and uh, the reading of the psalm and we're, you know, uh, doing the, the, the sign of the cross Then mm-hmm. praise and worship will start. And it's like, wait a minute, these people are kind of constables. They're charismatics. You know, I mean, they're raising their hands and they're very expressive and they're moving and they're dancing. And then you hear me preach and you're like, wait, they just, now they're Baptists, right? (laughs) This word and you have this, you know, uh, call and response. And then, you know, the, the end is the celebration of the Eucharist. So we go back to being Catholic. So, wow. Building that has given me such excitement over the years. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't be excited? building something like that in a Pentecostal charismatic context. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. And I love how it weaves unity among, within your congregation of the different kind of faith traditions. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 It is really this amalgamation. And it is really, you know, the recovery of the great tradition of the, of the three major streams that we see, this liturgical sacramental stream that runs throughout the history of the church, this evangelical gospel stream, preaching stream that runs, and then this charismatic, experiential, spiritual stream that runs throughout as well. You amalgamate those, and then it makes for really fun building. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sounds like it. That sounds awesome. Thank you. Sounds you. awesome. Yeah. 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 Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your book that you have coming out uh, next year. Is that right? Yes, next year with InterVarsity Press. Yeah. Yes. And 
It's called Toward a Pentecostal Orthodoxy. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. All right. Tell us a little bit about the book and what led you to write it. So Toward a Pentecostal Orthodoxy, it's coming out um, next fall with Innovation Mm -hmm. Press. I'm very excited. Um, You know, it it really had to do with both um, the building of the Union of Charismatic Orthodox Churches. I'm currently the Archbishop and the, the, the primate of the union. Uh, that's conglomerate mm-hmm. uh, federation of churches that come together. Um, and it had to do with building that coming out of the um, PhD uh, dissertation uh, that I was writing at Fordham University. And my father, my biological father, having conversations with him, and so in doing my research, I, I discovered that um, I discovered that there was no place for Pentecostals recovering the great tradition um, for their voices to be heard. There's a, there's, a, there's a large segment now that I'm being introduced to of Pentecostals that are recovering either base elements of the great tradition or uh, more foundational, more in-depth elements of the great tradition. Um, and yet there was nothing that was really telling their story. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nothing that was really hearing their voices. And so I came out of the PhD dissertation saying to myself, somebody has to write on this, right? And, and began to have yes. these conversations with my father and others around the country. And it was one day my father and I were talking about orthodoxy, middle old, in terms of right teaching and the recovery of, you know, the Eucharist every week and, um, liturgy and the sacraments of the church and the writings of the fathers and the mothers and all of these other things in terms of tradition. And he looked at me and he said, do you think I'm Orthodox? And I looked at this Pentecostal asking me if I thought he was Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting into my vehicle saying, man, am I Orthodox? Um, and so it really began this wonderful dialectical conversation with various people around the country. Um, and, um, I started putting pieces together of research to tell the story, um, of various Pentecostals all over the world, but particularly in North America that are recovering the great tradition in their own way again, but their voices weren't being told, but it was also to set correctives, Heidi, and Mm -hmm. bring about some type of correction in some segments of Pentecostalism that see the recovery of the great tradition as only wearing vestments. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So it also has broader implications, for example, um, as it relates to what, how do we go from here, right? What do Pentecostals do uh, who are recovering the great tradition? How do we, where do we go from here? What are the broader ecumenical implications for Pentecostal, for example, that believes 98% of what Roman Catholics believe? Mm-hmm. 98% of what Eastern Orthodox believes, 98% of what Anglicans believe. What are the ramifications and the implications of Pentecostals that recover real presence, right? And believe that this is really the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and are celebrating the Eucharist every week. You know, do we go into a canonical church or do we remain Pentecostals? Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the pet peeves was, for me, is that when the charismatic movement came in the 1960s, 1970s, really... Um, a lot of the uh, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Charismatic Roman Catholics 
they were a part of this charismatic renewal movement, but they didn't go into charismatic churches. They didn't go into Pentecostal churches. They remained, they remained Roman Catholics. They remained Episcopalians. They remained Anglicans. They remained Orthodox. And so I'm saying, hey, I think that just as the charismatic renewal movement, I think that now this renewal movement of Pentecostals recovering the great tradition, mm-hmm. I don't think that we necessarily have to go to the canonical churches. I think we can remain Pentecostals uh-huh. and still recover all these elements. That's what the book is about. Yeah. You know, I love sh- it. We'll, we'll be looking for that yeah. next fall when it comes out. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And kind of led me into my next question. As you know, the church has been through a lot, especially with COVID and even mm-hmm. before that. Sure. Where do you see where do you see us going from here? Well, you know, we're never going back to what it used to be. Yeah. Um, if if church and ministry and spirituality at all had changed in the last decade, it has changed in the last two years, even more so. Mm-hmm. I think that if there's anything good that really came out of COVID, I know there's some other good things, but I'm looking as a bishop now, right? Mm-hmm you know, an overseer generalization. I think it got us back to our monastic roots and the monastic reality of Christianity and spirituality. I think it reestablished home worship. Mm-hmm. I think it I, I think it it reestablished to some degree, to some degree, um the familial responsibility of spirituality. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. I think it got us back in touch with um, a sense of wonder, you know, homey, yes. homey wonder. Yeah. Um, but I think it also really helped us to see the prophetic um, in such a way um, that I don't know if we've ever seen it before. And when I say the prophetic, I'm really looking at um, the prophets in the Old Testament. And Mm -hmm. it got us to see the polarization of what it looks like when the church and the state are either in cahoots together or in opposites. And the need for a real prophetic move of God uh, for revival, and not revival just in the experiential sense, but revival mm-hmm. of the heart, a reform mm-hmm. of the heart. So I think that, and I'm hoping that, particularly in segments of you know evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, where I come from in my context, I think that that's taken to heart. I think that it. I hope that it will be a wake up call. Yeah. Um, but we are definitely now burdened to do ministry. Differently, I think burdened and blessed to do mm-hmm. ministry differently. Uh, yeah. We now know that the internet is and can be sacred space. Mm-hmm. A sacred space that yes. can be utilized for more than just you know going online and saying hello to friends. Um, and so I'm hoping that these changes in our own psyche, in our own spirituality, would lead to an even greater wave of the gospel being. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. 
We've talked about a lot of things, Dr. Alvarez, but we have one question that we ask everyone. But before we do, is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't already discussed? No, no. I think we've discussed everything. I appreciate (laughs) Thank you for giving me my uh, book plug in there. I I really appreciated that. I'm really excited about it. Um, But no, I think we've been, um, I think we've covered everything. All right. We've done it then. Well, the one question we ask everyone, because the show is called the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, what is one practice that is helping you thrive in your life right now? Um, Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Coffee. Coffee. I think one of the, okay, well, this is going to be really weird, um, but okay. Go for it. Um, Because I thought about this and late night cartoons really what's your favorite cartoon family guy (laughs) i know it's bad i know i know it's horrible because i know people are like this is a bishop um but family guy um american dad rick and morty um i can't go to bed without watching them Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And and you know, it's it's been it's 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 been puzzling to me why I watched them, Heidi. And I finally figured out talking to a friend of mine who's a psychologist, I finally figured it out. Yeah. And it is that at night, um, those three cartoons, they literally tear apart what I've been building all day. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they literally tear it apart, right? I mean Family Guy, Rick and Morty, American Dad, um, and sometimes Robot Chicken. If I stay up that late, but but I'm I'm here building, you know, propositional theological disciplines and and doing all this other stuff and thinking about God in a certain way. And then all of a sudden, here comes these three shows. You know, and they're so irreverent um, and so funny and so comical that they're actually allowing me to relax to. To, but they're also deconstructing, at least for that moment, what I'm building up all day. Um, and in that, I feel senses of refreshing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so that yeah. the next day and I'm not as burdened. My mind is not as burdened. My spirit, my, my whole emotionality is not as burdened. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast today. This, I found our conversation so fascinating and just a gift. So thank you so very much. Well, thank you for the invitation, Heidi. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Bishop Alvarez. Isn't he great, you guys? What a gift his work is to the world. Bishop Alvarez will be speaking in chapel at Asbury Seminary in Estes Chapel on October 21st at 11 a.m. If you can't join in person, you can join live online at asbury.to slash live. That's asbury.to slash live. And if you see him, be sure to thank him for being part of the podcast today. As always, you can follow Asbury Seminary in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Asbury Seminary. Until next time, I hope you'll go do something that helps you thrive.